Hi, everybody. Welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of Shalom Hartman Institute North America. We're recording today on April 30th, 2020, which is the day after Yom Ha'atzmaut, Israeli Independence Day. And that's going to be our topic for today. It's okay that we're recording not on Israeli Independence Day, but on the day after, because I'm recording from here in the diaspora where we keep two days of holidays. So we'll do the same for the purposes of Israeli Independence Day as well. Today I'm joined by Rabat Sigalitur, research fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Israel and a PhD candidate at Tel Aviv University, who's joining us from Israel. And we're going to be excited to hear from you, Sigalit, about the strange experience of Yom Ha'atzmaut this year, as opposed to all other years. And I'm also joined by Dr. Tomer Persico, who is the Shalom Harvard Institute's Bay Area Scholar-in-Residence and the Coret Visiting Assistant Professor at the Institute for Jewish Law and Israel Studies at Berkeley. And uh, you too, Tomer, celebrating uh, a strange Yomatz mode in two types of displacedness, uh, one from Israel and very far away, and also this weird experience of celebrating our holidays while sheltering at home. So first of all, thanks to both of you for being here. And let me just start by asking you uh, something great that you've read, watched, eaten, or cooked in the last couple of weeks, or maybe specifically for, for Yom HaTzmaut. Uh, Sigali, want to start with you? Well, I have to say Yom HaTzmaut usually is a day where I'm very busy, so I don't have time to watch TV to see the regular sort of very formal events that Israel puts on for Yom HaTzmaut, from the lighting of the the Masuot, the fortune, uh, the night, uh, the first night, to the Israel prizes the second night. But last night, uh, and indeed the whole day, there wasn't that much to do. Uh, so I did find myself watching here and there, including watching the granting of the Israel prizes. And uh, Vered Noam, Professor Vered Noam, who is uh, my professor of Talmud, is the first woman who won her Talmudic studies. And it made me and many, many, many people very, very happy. That made my day. Yeah, that's really special. Actually, yesterday on a podcast that we did at Hartman, uh, Danielle Hartman was on the podcast as well, uh, a, a webinar that we did with JFNA. And, and he said he was surprised this year, unlike other years, by the tone around the torches, the, the, the diversity that was actually reflected in Israeli society, the language of collective obligation, and said it was kind of unusual and different. So maybe we can come back to that a little bit later and ask whether there is a kind of tone change in Israeli society right now. Uh, Tomer, how about you? Well, I, I'm trying to use the seclusion at home to catch up on some uh, non-scholarly works and read, and I, I've read The Merchant of Venice. I'm trying to read some classics. I've read, so I'm reading Shakespeare. And I've read it for the first time. And, and you know, I'm quite, it's, it's amazing the amount of actually anti-Semitism that is there, right? I mean, with the whole Shylock's famous speech about has not a Jew, hands, and etc. I mean, the main motive of the play is not pro-Jewish, let's say. So, but I mean, uh, it, it was, it was an experience reading it uh, at home in Berkeley. And I love that. So on our end, I was debating whether the right thing to do as an American Jew celebrating Yom Ha'atzmaut is to cook what Israelis would cook for Yom Ha'atzmaut, which is to barbecue, or to cook what American Jews think that Israelis do in Yom Ha'atzmaut, which is to make falafel. So I decided in the end to, to go with the barbecuing. And the, the real hero of the cooking yesterday, last night, was making homemade pizza for the first time, which was surprisingly easy and grillable and uh, came out pretty good. So I, I tend to divide the world between people who cook and people who bake. 
And I'm definitely on team cook and, and not baking. It's just too orderly, the whole baking thing. So this felt like something I could bake, but I could be cooking at the same time. So hugs and math to both of you. Uh, happy Yomatz mode. I'm sure it's a day that evokes for both of you as Israelis all sorts of complicated emotions. Maybe, Sigali, you could, you could tell us a little bit about what Yomatz mode was like in Israel this year. You said you were less busy this year, less running around, fewer tulim. And, and of course, this is one of those days, Yomazi Karon, Israeli Memorial Day, also is the day of pilgrimage to grave sites and um, it has always felt to me when I'm there and from afar a day of the Israeli public square in all sorts of ways. So what did it feel like this year to be observing these days in a totally different set of situations? Well, it's a period in Israel every year where there is a glut of ceremonies. Last week, uh, ceremonies for Yom HaShoah, for Holocaust Remembrance Day. This week for Yom HaZikaron. In recent years, there are two ceremonies for Yom HaZikaron, the first on the eve of Yom HaZikaron and the second sort of to mark the transition between Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaZikaron. And um, since I live in a small village in the Galilee, we also have a tradition where on Yom HaZikaron in the afternoon, we take all the village kids and adults and, and elderly people and so on, and we go on, an, on a hike to um, a site where some battles or, or um, you know, some kind of... Uh, of historical event took place and we hear the story and uh, we have a ceremony there. This year, of course, we couldn't do anything like that. And we had um, the strange experience of ceremonies by Zoom or by YouTube. Very, very awkward seeing these people that we live across the street from just um, on the screens and, and having these very emotional moments mediated by, by technology. Really very weird. And then Yomat's mood itself is, as you mentioned, a day of, of tiulim, of hikes and of barbecues, um, usually very well attended by many people coming from uh, many places around the country. This year there was a curfew on Yomat's mood to prevent that kind of thing. So we could only socialize and even then very li- in a very limited way with the people in our village. And uh, no tiulim, including, and this really pains me, this is usually the time when I, when I take two months off if I can, from work, and just go hike. I always say it's a sin in this uh, springtime in Israel to stay in, indoors. But this year, we had to stay indoors, and we're missing the full kineret. For the first time in, I think, maybe 15 years, the kineret is reaching its highest level, and we haven't been there to see it. Very sad. I want to turn to you, Tomer, because I, I've always found one of the strangest parts of being an American Jew and a Zionist is celebrating these particular holidays. And especially that weird time difference, you actually feel it very intensely when Israelis have already moved on from Yom HaZikaron to Yom HaZikaron, but American Jews don't know, am I supposed to be keeping Yom HaZikaron now or still in Yom HaZikaron time? So you've been living in Berkeley for a couple of years now. And uh, I'm curious, you know, obviously this year is different than other years, but I'd be curious for you to reflect a little bit on what it means for an Israeli in the diaspora to be thinking about and celebrating these holidays. I mean, you know, this is continuing what you said before, whether we eat uh, Israeli or, or what we think the Israelis eat. I definitely work by Israeli time. So in Yom HaZikaron, in, in Memorial Day, I'm, I'm depressed when it starts in Israel. And, and when it's out in Israel, that's when I begin my Yom HaZikaron. It's I mean, I'm totally... Because also, you know, the, 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 today's social media allows you almost completely to be there. I mean, I'm, I'm, my friends are there, family is there. The radio I can hear from Israelis singing the appropriate tunes for your requested mood. So I'm, I'm completely there. And in that way, the fact that we, we're now in, in, in a sort of a, you know, a social seclusion, etc., 
didn't really mean a lot for me since anyway, it's not like I would have gone and hiked or barbecued with friends uh, here. Maybe, you know, maybe symbolically meeting a few Israelis that are around here, but not really. So I'm basically following what's happening in Israel and, and adjusting my mood accordingly. I have to say, I had kind of the, the opposite um, experience because I now have a daughter who's living in Maryland. She's a shlicha for the Sukhnut, an emissary. And she invited me to join the community Hallel that she was leading with Israeli tunes in Maryland. So on Yom Atzmut afternoon, Israel time, I went to join the morning Maryland Hallel for Yom Atzmaut and found it to be a very disorienting experience. I wasn't really sure what that had to do with the people in Maryland's experience, um, especially in this year. Was it, was it relevant in any way to, to where they are right now? Wait, why do you mean it was disorienting? What about it felt disorienting to you? You know, there's a big, uh, there used to be a big argument in Israel whether to do Halil on Yom Atzmaut, yes or no. And it's, you know, it's a dividing line between the Zionist synagogues who do Halil, some of them even with a bracha and some of them without, and the Haredi ones who don't. But Halil is a very Israeli thing to do. And um, especially with the, the, the version with the Israeli tunes, it seems to me that nowadays with everybody hunkering down in the Corona time, Halel celebrating Israel's birthday in the Maryland, how relevant is that? I mean, there are so many more burning concerns over there. Um, it almost felt uncomfortable to have my daughter sort of convening people to celebrate Israel's birthday when I'm sure they have more pressing concerns over there. That's an interesting insight. I mean, I guess, I guess the internal logic of it is either you treat these holidays as having religious significance. If that's your orientation as a Zionist, is to view these as uh, moments in Jewish history that rise to the level of other holidays, then if you do, then then you do Hallel and you say prayers and you use God's name to, to consecrate the days, or you don't. But I don't know, I don't know why uh, it would necessarily be the case that like, when I don't have Israel on my mind so much, I don't say Hallel. Because that would, that would feel like a way of saying, okay, this year I couldn't be with my family for Passover, so I guess I'm not doing Seder anymore. Right? Either it's part of the liturgical year or not. Uh, and, I, you know, Tomer, you and I have talked about this a little bit over the years since you've been in, in Berkeley as well, of your own experience as a Zionist feeling quite different, not actually living in Israel. I think this is the first time you've lived outside of Israel. So I wonder if what your, what your take is on that experience of American Jews celebrating or not celebrating Yom mode and, and what feels different for you as an Israeli in Israel versus not being in Israel? What feels differently is simply the, the very practical things that I can't go out and celebrate. My wife just reminded me that our third date 10 years ago was in Yom mode and we went together to Shuk Machne Yehuda, to the Machne Yehuda market, and, and every Yom mode not this Yom mode I guess, but, but every Yom mode there's a fair or a, a humongous street party there, and we, we join the people there and, and, you know, the fireworks and, and, and the whole thing. So, I mean, really, it's, it's less, it's less uh, an ideational sort of difference for me and more a practical, where am I going and who am I celebrating with? But being here is, is, is different in, in, in a way that, the, if, if at all, simply it's, it's seeing a different way to be a Jew, really. It's just seeing the whole national identity from afar and being able maybe to reflect about it. But uh, it, this is this is the whole year long, and, and Yom Atzmaut maybe a bit accentuates it, but really it's, it's, a, it's a different experience that way. Does it feel like a religious holiday to you, apropos Sigalit's comment? Mm, you know, I don't think so. No, 
it's just for me it's just a time to be happy that that we are living in such a blessed blessed era that we have this as jews it's really it's really just being thankful for that what about you sigali you said it felt strange for jews in maryland to be focused on the story and to be kind of saying god's name in prayer around yomat's moat and i'm i'm curious now on the other side like why would it feel less weird to do that as an Israeli among Israelis. And and I would also put you on the spot, is it a religious holiday for you? Well, when I was a kid, I said the Tfilah Adina, the prayer for the state of Israel, uh, you know, with Israel as the, the first flowering of our redemption with a whole heart. Nowadays, I don't really do that. Um, I use the conservative movements um, version, which sort of has dropped that. Or if I'm in a, an Orthodox synagogue and they say, an Orthodox Zionist one, and they say the regular one, then I say, Sheteheh. May it be the first flowering of our redemption. Um, and that, I guess, stems from some of my disappointments as to how the dreams of the first Zionists sort of turned out. I see a lot of, of failure. Even in the day after Yom Ma'ut, I, I still see that the first Zionists had very high standards and we don't really stand up to them. So does it have religious experience? Much less, I think. More for the potential than for the, um, for the actuality. Yeah, I suppose I identify with some of that too. I, um, at an earlier time in my life, I was like a poster child for American religious Zionism. And I've been much more ambivalent about it, uh, ever since because of my awareness, not just, it's not just about disappointment, but it's also about the, the politics that seem to travel almost inevitably with, with religious Zionism and the, the difficulty that it can feel, the incompatibility of being politically left and, and still identified with that camp. I guess the place that I've come out, and it shouldn't be that surprising, uh, all of us are one way or another affiliated with the Hartman Institute, but David Hartman has a has a, a powerful distinction that he draws between what he calls the ethics of description and the ethics of response about the question of God in history, where he says, um, I would not have the hubris to try to describe God acting in history. I have no idea whether or not God intervenes to create the state of Israel, and partly he says that because if you if you if you make the claim that God is acting in history on behalf of the state of Israel, you have to come up with some really shallow explanation of how God acts in history with respect to the Shoah, the Holocaust. He says, I make no empirical description about God in history. All I ask myself is as a religious person, what is my response to the changing face of history supposed to look like? Um, so in other words, I don't, I don't want to say anything affirmative about God, but I do want to say something affirmative as a religious person. But I guess, you know, the whole debate on whether it's a holiday aside, I also have just struck that, and I, I find this for myself, I'm curious for both of you, given your politics and your voice, I know, especially Tomer, you are a, a widely known political commentator in Israel. And um, I, I've always found that Yom Ha'atzmaut is the one day of the year where I, as a liberal Zionist, oftentimes critical of the state of Israel, just want to have like a day to celebrate it. So actually, it's, it's very secularity as being just a day of celebration is in some ways also a kind of way out of that of like, yeah, I'll, we'll, we'll, we'll argue tomorrow about how, how it's doing. But today it's just basically uh, a, a day for celebration. That's exactly how I feel. And I felt for many years, I have to say this year, it's a bit different. I feel with the whole three elections in, in, in the past year, behind us, just behind us, and the new government trying to be formed by changing actually basic laws and uh, actually nitty-gritty of the, the structure of, of Israeli governance. That's what they're doing. I'm a bit less only festive and a bit more 
critical uh, with what's happening now in Israel. So it's been also in that account a bit harder for me. I have to say it's not only a religious thing. Also, you know, responding to Sigalit, I, I come from a secular house and, and, and I certainly never bought into or, or believed in the messianic sort of promise uh, of being in a, in, a, in a redemptive age or something like that. But, but even in a general Zionist, Zionist uh, perception, Zionism was always not only about building a home, a secure home, or a national home for the Jews in Israel. It was always also about building a, building a model society, a just society, uh, a society and a state which we can be proud of as, as an exemplary state a, a sort of a secularization of the old Agoyim, the light to the nation. So in that account, I, I had to join Sigalit and, and you maybe with the, with a bit disappointment and the, the hope that something will, that we are still not too late to fulfill that promise. I think something that really put it in a nutshell was um, a piece that was put out right on Motzeo Matmod, right after, as we were all sort of, celebrating the one day where we celebrate without reservation, they put out this preview of a satirical show called Hayudim Ba'im, The Jews Are Coming. And it's a parody of a song from the 90s that had um, an army group singing about their disappointment of the fact that their parents promised that they would have peace and they're still in peace. So this parody was about the kids of the kids singing about not just their disappointment that they're still in peace, but their disappointment that the only promises that they're getting, never mind that the promises aren't being fulfilled, but the promises themselves have just become, you know, it's going to be eh, kind of okay. Just, just the difference between that, we promise you it's going to be kind of okay, to the big promise, to the big ideals, to the big models that we, you know, that you read in the Declaration of Independence of the State of Israel is just painful. Yeah, I, I find as a Zionist and a Zionist who believes that part of what it means to be a Zionist is to be in conversation with Israel's successes and failures. And um, as someone who believes in the American Jewish community and trying to broaden the tent of legitimate discourse around Israel, at minimum, you should be able to say things in American Jewish communities that can be said in the Israeli Knesset. But oftentimes it's actually narrower in the American Jewish community. Uh, one of the places that I, I would love to see a flourishing of Zionist education in the diaspora is around, around Israeli comedy. Because things like Hayudim Baim, uh, Eretz Nehederet, all of these shows have a biting, critical quality, and it's rooted in a paradigm of citizenship. It's rooted in a notion of, yeah, I'm angry and I'm disappointed because it's not the country that I want to be. And there's something deeply liberating about it. It's sad, right? That that bit that I saw that you referenced, Eagle, it's really sad and funny and scary, but it's also, there's something freeing about the normalcy that comes with a society that actually knows how to do self-criticism. The world has been thrown into turmoil by COVID-19, and it's made people think about what it means to be in a community, even when people can't see or physically interact with each other. This is something that the Jewish people have grappled with over the centuries. On May 6th, join us as Shalom Hartman President Daniel Hartman talks to Congregation Beth Am in West Bloomfield, Michigan, about how we reimagine the relationship between Jews around the world in light of today's growing tensions and challenges. Together, apart, and alone, Thoughts on the Jewish Community in Our Time will be a registration-only Zoom seminar on Wednesday, May 6th at noon Eastern Daylight Time. 
Register now at updates.hartman.org.il. Uh, Tomer, you brought a couple of texts for us to, to read today and to talk about uh, from, from Israel's founding some, some questions of law. And I, and I want you to lead us a little bit in, in uh, exploring those together. And, and, and hopefully we can use that as a, as a way to talk a little bit about not just Yom mode itself, Israel Independence Day, but the state of the state. I mean, continuing from Yom mode, I want to ask myself, and I, what really is Israel for? I mean, and, and I, I just mentioned that the, the, a certain vision that the Zionists had had, I mean, a, a vision not only of a, of a home, but of a modern society. It's really an answer to the question, what are we doing here, right? Why are we establishing a new state? What's the purpose? And living in the States, I'm witnessing, I'm engaged with the difference of uh, the different answer that the founding fathers of the United States gave for their project. Why are they founding a new country, right? A new state. What's, what's the purpose of it? And you can actually see this very clearly in the two declarations of independences of the United States and of Israel, right? And it starts really from the very first line. If you take the, the declaration of independence of the United States first line, the first line is, when in the course of human events, right? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and you've got the, the Israeli declaration of independence. The land of Israel was the birthplace of the Jewish people. That's the first line. And already from there, you can, you can, you can get that the, these people are talking about totally different projects. One is a universal, global, humane, humanity-centered project of a new kind of society, a new kind of country, a democracy, an egalitarian, kind, etc. And we know, of course, all the flaws that were already there, but that's the vision, right? That's the pretense. And in Israel, the state of Israel, the vision is different. It is a specific state for a specific people. They have a specific historical connection to that place. They want a specific country to be founded. And that's, that's what they need, right? You know, jumping ahead with the texts, you can see that, you know, we all know in the, in the U.S. Declaration of Independence, we all, you know, know by heart that uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men were created equal and certain inalienable rights among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But what's the next sentence? We stop our, you know, our rehearsed memory at that point. What's the next sentence? The next sentence is to secure these rights, governments are founded, instituted among men, right? So it's stated very clearly. We are establishing a government to secure our basic rights. That is the premise. And that comes straight out of John Locke's uh, philosophy. And, and, and that's the whole, you know, the whole social contract that the United States is based upon. And again, looking at the, the Israeli Declaration of Independence, that's not what the state is for. Now, the Declaration does say Israel will be open and will be equal and will protect the rights, etc. But it says Israel will uh, have an open uh, immigration for Jews. Israel will will forward Jewish settlements over the land, etc., etc. So it's pretty clear that the project is establishing a nation state for a certain people. And I think actually that many American, including Amer- Americans, including American Jews, living in the U.S. and so ingrained and, and, you know, breathing and drinking the U.S. 
Declaration of Independence and all it represents day and night have a problem understanding different conceptions of modern nation states that are not this sort of universalistic humanitarian uh, vision. And in Israel, that's simply not the case. So I appreciate what you're asking us to do, which is basically to go back to these two countries' moments of founding and to try to identify the mythic narrative that they tell about themselves and to acknowledge that that as a result, they, they are, they are two stories that are holding themselves accountable by different standards. Israel's story of itself, as you're suggesting, is a nation state to solve for the problems of the Jewish people and rooted in a particular curated historical narrative about that land. So we could talk about what's left out of that story, quite obviously. And, um, in some ways, what you're saying is like, I know Israel is not a, a success story from a universalistic standpoint. But the measure, the yardstick, is merely a success story from whether it's good for the Jewish people's internal narrative about itself. But as I say that out loud, and I'm, I'm sympathetic to it, look what problem that creates. Right? No, no, but I, I didn't say that. I said, yes, certainly we shouldn't judge Israel by the universal yardstick. Certainly Israel is meant to be something else. By the way, not only meant by its founders, but also recognized by the United Nations and the international community to be something else. Of course, now we need to judge it, but that, by that yardstick, it still has to be a democracy. It still has to respect equally all its uh, citizens' rights, etc., etc. And now by that yardstick, it's also, I can have some criticism about it. But certainly, we shouldn't judge it by the standard of the United States. And I'll give an example. If you look at uh, Ben-Gurion's and, and Jokotinsky's writings, you will see there a uh, distinct... Uh, underlining of the necessity for Jews to be a majority between the Jordan and the sea or for Jabotinsky also trans-Jordan, etc. And you see that talk about being a majority and needing Aliyah and, and needing millions of Jews to come from Europe. This is before the Holocaust, etc. And in American eyes, this is at the least, you know, uncomfortable and, and at, at most simply racist and, and totally uh, illegitimate. Right, because we need to found a democracy which doesn't concern itself with the ethnicity or nationality of the of the citizens, right? That's that's the United States. You don't care where you come from, right? But here again, it's a different project meant to fulfill different desires, different aspirations, right? And and in the context of Israeli nationality, this is perfectly logical and indeed necessary because what these Zionists wanted to do is not live in a country that gives them rights, gives them equal rights. They can have that in the U.S. They wanted to live in a country which gives other people equal rights. They will be the ones that are in charge of equity and democracy, right? And now you can judge if they are if we are successful in that or not. But that's the aspiration and that's the, I think, totally legitimate project that they were trying to establish. Yeah, I mean, I think um, this was something that, that is, is very much accepted as a, as, a, as a well-known truth here. And it wasn't even something that I considered problematic in any way. I grew up in the Tel Aviv area and I was surrounded by the Jewish majority and um, never sort of saw with my eyes somebody who was not a part of the, the Jewish majority. And then 20 years ago, we moved to, uh, to live in the Galilee and suddenly here I was a member of a minority. 
because in the Galilee, most of the residents are Arabs. And suddenly it, it, it sort of hit me, this reality in which there's this sizable minority, which um, at least by law is completely equal, but um, in fact, there are um, glitches here and there. And then there's this basic, basic, basic difference, which is the law of return and the definition of the state and so on, which even if all the glitches are solved, even if there is no discrimination um, acceptance to jobs and admittance to universities and so on and so forth. There is still that basic difference between um, those um, two kind of population groups. And it's really um, sort of sad that the fulfillment of our 2,000-year-old dream to build an independent Jewish state, if you want to sort of go by the Zionist uh, narrative, um, involves to some extent the creation of this minority that, that is not able to fulfill that national aspiration. Now, having said that, this week, um, the Jewish People's Policy Institute published this uh, survey showing that at the same time that we had the sorry story of uh, the three elections, um, the political moves somehow caused the fact that the number of Israeli Arabs who now define themselves as Israeli, either Israeli end of story, or Israeli Arabs has grown a lot, and the number of, of, of these people defining themselves as Palestinians is greatly reduced. So I'm wondering if, whether that's a pragmatic change, whether that's something uh, sort of kind of hopeful, um, in that we're, we're managing to create something that is Israeli as opposed to Jewish here in Israel, and whether that trend will move someplace that is um, a little more optimistic, for me at least. Yeah, I want to park for a second a whole other question that that raises, which is the weirdness for American Jews or for non-Israeli Jews outside of Israel for when when they're actually become equal rights under the law and equal rights in practice for Israeli Arabs, American Jews' own position actually becomes more precarious. So we can we can park that for a second. Uh, that's one of A.B. Yehoshua's uh, historical arguments about the weird status that American Jews have. I guess Tomer, my in some ways my my resistance to the the reading uh, that you're offering of kind of contrasting these birth documents as being measures of themselves is that both of them feel to me dishonest. The American project that describes itself in universalistic terms, you acknowledged in your reading, was meant for white landowning men. The 1619 project uh, that the New York Times has been doing over the past uh, year or two, uh, documenting the extent to which the slave trade was an essential vehicle of the construction of this project. And so on one hand, America talks about itself as building a universal ideal for all of its citizens, but has never actually done that. Uh, and Israel's imagination of itself as designed particularly for the need, the national needs of the Jewish people, just after a while, when it's a minority community envisioning its own future, I'm with you. That's my Zionism. I'm there for you in 1948. I'm there for you in 1967. But at a certain point, when you're a global superpower, when you actually have the majority and the minority there, the insistence on the covenantal document being rooted in the basic legitimacy of your own story, at a certain point, it's why is that, why do we want to keep building that project? And don't the voices of the Zionist dissenters from the late 1940s who wanted the Jewish people to be building a more universalistic and utopian ideal, who wanted it to look more like, you know, 1776, that starts to become a, a critique that feels much more deep. So what does it do to keep holding on to the founding story as opposed to doing 
the corrective work of the president? Well, I mean, thanks, Yuda. I'll say this is a very big question. And, and uh, you know, disregarding the very fact that 1776 is terribly early uh, for people to actually produce a utopia and the United States was the first democracy or, or liberal democracy in modern, etc., which is a fantastic achievement in itself. And, and I mean, I think knowing history, we should acknowledge that processes take time and ideals take time to be brought to fruition. But putting all that aside, I think it's terribly important to remember our founding principles and to, to hold on to that because that gives us the leverage to demand from ourselves today to live up to certain principles. I mean, yes, I know that neither Ben-Gurion nor George Washington lived up to all the principles they read out loud or signed. That's true, but, but, but that was because they, as any person, have their own deficiencies and, and, and certain weaknesses. But having those ideals uh, beside us creates the demand for us to fill them and, and look at countries that don't have these ideals, right? It's not like that, that people in, in, in the Soviet Union, or I mean, sorry, in Russia, can say to Putin today, what are you doing? This is not us. This is not what we dreamed about. This is not what, we, what our founding fathers wanted. They can't say that, right? Because there's no structure there that demands something else. So it's, I think it's terribly important that we have that and that we, we, can, we can have that yardstick to compare ourselves to again and again and to demand more out of us, to, even to guilt shame ourselves into acting better, right? And indeed what I am, but, but, you know, turning to the, the second part of what you said, I am, as a, as a Zionist and as a person who believes that the Jews do have a right to be a majority in their own nation state and to chart out their own future and to self-express and self-describe themselves by themselves, I totally believe this is truly legitimate. As such a person, I am frightened by a prospect uh, in, in the future that will demand of me holding on to other moral imperatives also to let go of that dream and say, you know, this has failed and now we need to simply have a, a, a citizen-based community that doesn't take into account nationalities, that we, have, we will have a binational state or, a, or simply a... A, a democracy like let's say like France or whatever, because we have for too long not come to an egalitarian, equitous society, and we have, you know, and we have the the, the West Bank controlled by the military, and it simply can't go on. I mean, I'm afraid of the moment that I will have to let go of of Ben Gurion and Jabotinsky's vision and understand that there's no choice to be both a moral Jew and, and a, a national Jew. We, hear, we need to, to make a choice. Well, I think, first of all, there's a pragmatic, pragmatic issue um, that's related to our, our uh, hanging on to the Declaration of Independence, which is that it's widely accepted. And I think Israeli society currently is so fragmented along so many fault lines that the discussion to try to frame something that would be somewhat as widely accepted as the Declaration of Independence would just either fail dramatically or just tear the society apart. 
So there's something um, sort of safe and um, comforting in the fact that we can hang on to that. Um, you know, it was there at our birthplace and we just um, continue along with that and we don't have to, to talk about it too much. Um, I mean, and, and look at the, what, uh, what the, the nation state law um, started up um, in the public sphere. The Declaration of Independence also is, um, is somewhat vaguely stated. And I think that's, um, that's very wise. When you want to, to, to frame something that will last for a long time, then you try to frame it kind of vaguely, just like the Torah is sort of lets you have different interpretations of things to a certain extent, not, not to that extent, but to a certain extent, all this, the Declaration of Independence does that. It's not um, framed as this is halakha. It's more sort of wide-ranging ideals. And in that sense, it lends itself more easily to being a sort of a vision document and less of a, um, a sort of a, a, a blueprint for what's supposed to happen. Of course, you read this and you see places where it's um, missing bits of history, the places where it's blatantly telling an incorrect story you realize that uh, there are motives there and uh, perhaps we would have written it differently today. I, I wish that we have a chance to reach um, a place where we, we will be able to sit in mixed groups, uh, circles of, um, of Israeli citizens, you know, an Arab and a Haredi uh, person and a, um, you know, and a, and a Chiloni, a secular Jew and so on, and, and sort of rewrite um, our founding document. I don't see where we can do that um, anytime soon. It's like if, imagine if the Jewish people today had to kind of crowdsource the Ten Commandments. Uh, so you're, you have a version of your founding story that is what you have. And I'm reminded of Robert Cover's Nomos and Narrative and the, the need for overarching stories that we tell about ourselves and then simultaneously the need for legal political and other infrastructure that actually turns those big stories that we tell about ourselves into the, the way in which we can actually order our world. Uh, last question. I'll ask both of you a kind of a lightning round, uh, a little personal, but uh, maybe tell us uh, the name of somebody who you're remembering this year, Anyoma uh, Zikaron, or you were remembering this year, Anyoma Zikaron, and then maybe tell us uh, something that you're proud of as you celebrated this year's Yom HaTzmaut. Um Okay. I'll begin with, uh, with Yom Zikaron. 20-something years ago, there was a terrible accident where two choppers crashed into each other on the northern border, and 73 soldiers were killed. One of them, his name was Avi Ofner, and his parents, after grieving, got up from the Shiva and said, we're continuing to live. We choose not to die from within. And they decided to start a project, which I've been joining every year for the past 15 years or so, uh, which is that they organize a huge hike on the Israel Trail from Eilat in the south to Al Yashuv in the north, the place where the copters crashed. Two months of hiking um, to which all people from Israeli society are invited, Jews and Arabs, secular and, uh, and religious. And it's just a chance to hike and walk and uh, meet and discuss and argue and fight um, and make friends and so on. And it's just an example for me how these people from the ashes managed to create this incredible, incredible project that has touched the lives of tens of thousands of people. Um, and every year when we reach Shal Yashuv, they tell the story of Avi, the soldier who I never met, but it kind of feels like I already know him because I've heard all these stories about how he was as a kid. And um, that's one of the people 
who I think of on your musical one? I have to say I'm fortunate enough not to know anybody personally who has died in, uh, in one of the wars or the terrorist attacks. So, so I really don't have anyone specific. I'm, I'm just sad in a general way. And, and if I want to be proud of something, I mean, I've been watching terribly closely the, the, last, the last year's rounds and rounds of elections. And what I want to be, I want to acknowledge and, and say I'm proud of is the amount of Israeli people's uh, involvement and engagement in politics. I mean, we've had the percentages, the voting percentages in each elections only rise, right? And people, I mean, experts were concerned whether people would just give up and, and just, you know, stay home and not vote. It's a holiday anyway. They can go to the beach. And, and use it as a vacation, but that didn't happen. And people actually went more and more each election cycle. And, and I'm, I'm pretty proud of it. And I hope that doesn't change really also concerning the last, I mean, the government that is going to form, which, which is a very big disappointment for many people, of course, on the left, uh, especially. Well, this, this year, as, as many years, I think about my cousin, Anna Orgel, uh, who was killed in a bus bombing uh, in 2003. Uh, in Jerusalem. And, um, and what I'm proud of this year, uh, especially is actually, if I may say, both of you, it's, uh, it's incredible to know and to work with, uh, scholars of tremendous intellect and moral fiber who are proud Israelis who, uh, and who work on a day to day basis in your private and in your professional lives towards the moral and political improvement, uh, of the state of Israel and Israeli society. So with that, thank you all for listening to our show this week and special thanks to my friends and my guests. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced and edited this week by David Svi Kalman. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman, with music provided by So Called. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online, shalomhartman.org. We want to know what you think about the show, and you can write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, and everywhere else podcasts are available. See you next week. Stay safe and healthy, and thanks for listening. <laughs>